you will join me, please, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. We continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning, we'll be finishing out chapter 19 and verses 45 through 48. The sermon this morning is entitled, A House of Prayer. And our key words for our worshipers in training are house, temple, and robbers. Now, if you recall from last week, we looked at the previous passage with Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem from Bethany down the Mount of Olivet. Jesus was coming as the king. He was being hailed as the king. This was the great triumphal entry. The people were rejoicing. The people were throwing their cloaks on the ground as he rode on a donkey toward the city, saying together, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so Jesus, the greatest king of all kings, riding on a baby donkey into the city, being praised by the people. And as Jesus came down the mountain, He lifted his gaze and he saw the city of Jerusalem before him and he began to weep. And prophetically, he announced that in only a few short decades, the entire city would be absolutely destroyed and that the enemies of Jerusalem would level the city to the ground. And Jesus showed himself to be the king. He showed himself to be a prophet, And this morning we will see that Jesus also shows himself to be the great high priest. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a priest. And Jesus is our king. And only Jesus can fulfill all three of these offices. And all three of these have been fulfilled by others individually throughout the history of redemption. However, they were always done by imperfect men in imperfect ways. We see all three offices perfectly fulfilled in Jesus alone. So the section we're looking at this morning is quite short, but it's full of implications, especially for the local church. It's a very well-known event in the Bible, and it is Jesus cleansing the temple of those who were money changers and thieves. There's a lot going on here in the text, so let's begin by looking at all of these verses, beginning in verse 45, Luke chapter 19. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So let's begin with what Jesus' problem actually was. Why did he drive out the money changers and the sellers or the thieves? And then we're going to look at what we can draw from this in the life of the local church. There's a lot of application this morning. So Jesus tells all of them in verse 46, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den 
of robbers. So let's unpack that a bit. This is actually the second time in Jesus' ministry when he has cleansed the temple. The Gospel of John records another instance, which was early on in his ministry, and was apparently for the very same reason. Some historical context here is going to be helpful for us. Exodus chapter 30 gives instruction for all of the people to give half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. The shekel was their currency. It was a Jewish coin. The problem was that during this time, the Jews were under Roman rule. And so their currency was Roman currency. So it became a matter of convenience for the Jewish people to have a place where their Roman coins could be exchanged for the Jewish half shekel. And that's all fine and good, and it was appropriate. However, where there's a way to capitalize on a situation for profitable gain, man will take it. A group of people called money changers rose up and were willing to gladly exchange any Roman coins for Jewish shekels for the Passover pilgrims who were coming through from all over the land. However, the problem was the exchange was not a one-for-one trade. There was a significant profit associated with this exchange. And we're not talking about them making a few dollars here or there to make a living. You have to remember that thousands upon thousands of Jewish people were coming from all around Judea to come to the temple for Passover. So money changing became a very lucrative business And the result was that those who were coming were being stolen from. They were in the situation where they had to have a shekel, but they had no other way of getting it. And so the money changers had a monopoly on their hands, and they took advantage of it. They were oppressing the people. In like manner, according to God's law in Leviticus 14, the Jews were also required to offer a sacrifice of two turtle doves or pigeons. We saw this taking place in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus as an infant was being presented at the temple. Well, as the Jews were traveling from all over Judea to come to the temple, it wasn't a simple thing for them to carry birds with them. In many instances, they were traveling for days, even weeks, to get there. Imagine just driving from here to the other side of the country, and you have to carry birds along with you. It's not the easiest thing in the world, especially in the ways that they traveled. So what happened was crafty businessmen sprang to action. They found a way to make money selling birds. Others were selling cattle and sheep for these sacrifices as well. So this, like the money exchange, became a very lucrative business as they charged enormous fees for these animals. And they knew the people had no other choice. So think of the disgrace of this situation. Taking advantage of their fellow Jews who were seeking to fulfill God's law in making sacrifices in the temple before the Lord for worship. The money changers and the sellers were bringing shame upon the temple of God. But the real issue wasn't simply that they were selling, that they were exchanging. If you know how the temple was set up, you know that there were various courts leading up to the most holy place. 
There was a sort of tiered structure beginning outside the temple, then moving inside. And the first court that someone would enter into was called the court of Gentiles. The next court was called the Sorig. That's where the Gentiles and the non-purified Jews were prohibited from going. And then there was a court of women, where the purified Jewish women were allowed to gather for worship. And then the groups narrowed from there as they went on closer and closer to the most holy place, who was allowed to go where. So here's what's going on. The money changers and the merchants are set up in the outer court. They are in the court of the Gentiles. Well, what was the court of the Gentiles for? It was for Gentile people who wanted to come and worship God. They were able to enter into that part of the temple for their worship. So what was happening is that these money changers and sellers are coming into the court of Gentiles, into the worship area for the Gentiles, and it crowded them out. In other words, they're being cut off from the worship of God. So when Jesus speaks here in verse 46 and says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting Isaiah 56. Listen to the words of God from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 56 and verses 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, And holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So you see the nations... A witness to the world was what the Israelites were supposed to be because of God's desire for the nations. God's plan has always been for every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, not just the Jews. And the Jews were supposed to be a light to the nations, not by their edifices in in, in Jerusalem, but through their lives, through their, through their worship, through their faithfulness and holiness and godliness and their, their heralding of God's truth to the world around them, for the world to look at and say, what an amazing God you have. Let us too worship Him. You know, it, it's amazing that God required a place in His temple for the Gentiles to come and to worship. And yet, those who were ethnically Jewish did not understand that God's people were not God's people because of their flesh. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So before the Apostle Paul, before the death of Christ, before the building of the temple, God had a people even among the Gentiles. 
and he provided a place for, him, for them in his temple to worship. But you see, with the Jews, in their sectarian hearts, in their desire to keep God to themselves, the Jews were content to crowd out the Gentiles. And they defiled the temple in doing so. They made it a den of robbers instead of allowing it to be used as it was intended, as a house of prayer for all peoples. And this had long been a problem with the Jews. Jesus is also quoting the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7 and verse 11 says this, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So what we see here with Jesus is a righteous indignation over the sins of the Jews. And this is what it looks like. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ was entirely without sin. So he's not acting with any kind of malice or hatred toward anybody, but he has a righteous anger. And this really gets at the meaning of what Paul says in Ephesians 4 when he instructs us to be angry and do not sin. There is a righteous anger. And it comes from being concerned about the things that God is concerned about. Being angry about the things that God is angry about. And addressing them in a way that is not sinful. And Jesus does that here. Now something I want you to notice about Jesus and how he deals with this. Notice he doesn't stand on a stump and kind of get everyone's attention and say, excuse me, I have an announcement to make. Excuse me, just real quick. I don't don't want to bother you too much, but I just want you to know we're not really going through the proper procedures here. Maybe some of you aren't aware of what those are. I just want to fill you in so we can get on the same page. Right? That's not what Jesus does. What does he do? He's consumed by a holy zeal. He has a righteous anger. And he comes into the temple. He overturns the tables and the chairs of the money changers. And he throws out the merchants and their customers. And he refuses entrance to any who are carrying goods for sale. These people were literally cutting off the Gentiles from worshiping God. They were robbing the Gentiles of their way of salvation because they loved money more than they loved souls. So Jesus powerfully drove them out of the temple of God. So much for Jesus being a weak pacifist, right? Such actions of the Jews were a disgrace. They were an absolute abomination, a blasphemous dishonoring of God, an idolatry of money, a hatred for their neighbors. And Jesus was not going to allow the rich and powerful to exploit the poor under the guise of facilitating the worship of God. So the narrative here is pretty simple. We understand what's going on. But from there, Luke explains that Jesus began teaching in the temple during the final week of his life. Remember, we are about day two of the last week of Jesus' life. But he never gave up teaching. He continued all the way through to the end. Most likely, he was hanging out in the court of Gentiles, teaching the people as they would gather to hear him. And as he was doing so, Luke writes in verses 47 and 48, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. 
and they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. But here we see the table being set for Jesus' crucifixion. His actions all along, and now his teaching, is turning up the heat from a simmer to a boil in the wicked hearts of his detractors. They were beginning in earnest to search all the more diligently to find a reason to destroy him. So now we have to look at all of this and ask the question, what use is this to us? It's a simple event, and we could simply take it as the historical reality is and leave it there. But this passage is full of implications for the local church. And I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at those. One of the clearest implications of this text is that God desires his church to be pure and undefiled. And that plays out in several ways. Jesus shows up at the temple and he begins to clean house. And something he's communicating here is the reality that he has absolute authority to do so. He's physically displaying the reality that he is God. Notice something in verse 56. Jesus doesn't say, the father said, my house shall be a house of prayer. He just says straightforwardly, my house, my house. House. So what does he do? He starts changing things immediately. Now, we are friends. We love one another. However, if I came into your house, and as I walked in, I took a picture off the wall and hung it on another wall, and I moved your couch, and I put your television on the back porch, and put your bed on another wall... I think you would probably have a few questions for me, right? We don't go into someone else's house and start rearranging everything. The only person who does that is the person who owns that place. And this is what Jesus is doing. He comes as the one whose temple it is. This is my house. And he begins immediately to get rid of all that is profaning God. He is God. This is his place. This is his temple. And he is concerned about purity. So here's a few ways in which the purity of God's church is to be maintained. How does this concern of Jesus' play out in the life of the local church? The first thing is corporately. And we see corporately two ways where God maintains the purity of his church. The first is through rightly ordered worship. And this was Jesus' concern, right? The Gentiles weren't even able to worship because they're being crowded out by others. They were not able to carry out the very thing that they had come there to do. Their court was transformed. It became a place for the money-hungry idolaters. So worship is a priority. And we must use what God has given us according to the way that he desires it to be offered up to him. So what does that mean for us? Well, we believe that our worship is regulated by God. We believe something called the regulative principle of worship. Well, what's that? We believe that God has commanded of us what he desires to happen in our worship and that we should not do more and we should not do less than what he has explicitly commanded 
in the scriptures. Now, this specifically relates to our corporate gatherings on the Lord's day. So, this time each week as we're gathered as we are right now. This is one way that God maintains the purity of his church. By appointing what should and should not happen in the gathering of God's people. So here's what he has commanded throughout the Bible. He's commanded the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's commanded the offering of prayers of various kinds, repentance and supplication and thanksgiving. He's commanded the public reading of the word of God. He's commanded the public preaching of the word of God. He's commanded the practice of the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And optionally, he has given us the taking up of a collection for the work of the church. And other than these things, as I've mentioned, we are not authorized by God to bring anything else into our worship. No altar calls, no drama presentations, no puppet shows. And while those who participate in these things may be well-intentioned, they are ignoring the explicit commands of God as it pertains to worship and the implicit showing of what God requires in that he desires a purified and holy church according to his standard and not ours. And this is not to say that the way we do it here at Ephesus Church is the only way to do it. There are many different ways in which we can take this principle and it can be applied in the worship of God's people across the world. However, there should be some level of uniformity as the people of God gather. We cannot abandon the true worship of God according to these elements which he has given to us. To do otherwise would prove to be very devastating. It would show that we don't trust the sufficiency of what God has set down for the church. And we are seeking other means by which to worship him. We want to be faithful. We want to be evangelistic. We want to be a worshiping body of believers. And we want to do it in the way that God is pleased. The way that God has commanded We need to simply be obedient to God's word and trust him with the results. God gets to define what the church is. God gets to define how it should function. In his house, we must respond to his agenda. And the purity of the church is maintained first and foremost through the rightly ordered worship of that church. The second way God maintains the corporate uh, purity of his church is through the practice of church discipline. We see that very thing here as Jesus is driving out the money changers and sellers from the temple. Without a doubt, one of the most difficult aspects of local church life and ministry is the necessity of church discipline. It's not an enjoyable thing. However, it's an entirely necessary, loving, and biblical thing. We see the teaching of Jesus and of the Apostle Paul reminding us that when there is unchecked, unrepentant sin in the midst of the body of Christ, it works like a terminal cancer. It spreads quickly. It cripples the body. And as the body deteriorates, it infects more and more parts of the body. And eventually, it is completely dead. If we openly and knowingly allow sinful activity to take place... 
unrepentant in the body of Christ, we should just write Ichabod on the doorpost because the Spirit of God will have left and the church will die. Inevitably, church discipline looks unloving. It hurts feelings. It often causes more than those who are being disciplined to leave a church. However, our only other option is to turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin and wait for Jesus to come turn over our tables and drive all of us out of his church. It's a frightful thing to dishonor the Lord and allow sin to fester in our midst. God loves the church. Jesus loves his bride. He loves her too much to allow her to be tainted and defiled. And he will not allow his bride to be prostituted out to those who seek to use her for their own wicked ends. And he calls the church collectively, corporately, to faithfully protect her purity through the processes he has given in the scriptures, particularly in Matthew 18. And we learn what God's ultimate purpose is in making known the sins of those who profess to be Christians and yet refuse to repent. The goal is restoration. The goal is this end desire of repentance and reconciliation. It's about lovingly restoring sinners to the bride of Christ, that it is pure and undefiled and rightly worshiping God. So these are the two ways that God corporately maintains the purity of his bride, through rightly ordered worship and through church discipline. He also does this individually. God maintains the purity of his bride in all of us who are Christians personally, individually, through the process of our obtaining holiness through our sanctification. Here's part of the issue with the temple. The temple's not just about believing the right things or doing the right things or being a nice person. The temple was built so that the people would know God, so you could commune with God. It was the place of God's presence. And so it's about a spiritual reality. And Jesus' cleansing the temple was about his demand for the spiritual reality of communion with God in the life of his people. So here's the reality. If Jesus transforms us and makes us new creatures in him, what does he do? He comes and he completely rearranges the furniture of our lives, right? This is one of the ways you know Jesus is in your life. John 1.12 says, As many as believed on his name, as many as received him, he gave authority to become children of God. As children of God, that means every one of us should have had our own personal day when we encounter the triumphal king and he triumphantly enters into our lives as the king of our lives that we would shout, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Ride on and ride in, Lord Jesus. And that's what happens on that day. How do you know if Jesus is in your life? How do you know if he has come into your life? He arranges the furniture when he gets there. And here's Jesus riding in on Palm Sunday, and as soon as he gets to the temple, he starts acting like a king. When he comes into a place where he is the king, he has the right to rearrange the furniture. 
and he always will. You know, sometimes we, we talk to people who say, I believe in God, but I, I also believe it's up to me to decide what's right and wrong for me. And to that I say, you and I do not know the same God. The real God, the one true and living God, whenever he shows up, doesn't sit and say, let's have a conversation about these things. What do you think would be a good way for me to use you in my kingdom? I'd like to hear from you. What do you think about lying in this circumstance? Maybe we can write an exception for you. You think it'd be okay to sleep with this person who you're not married to? what What do you think? What makes sense to you? Does Jesus talk like that to anybody ever? And when Jesus shows up, he says, I am king. I created you, and here is how it's going to go. And he begins to rearrange the furniture in our lives. He begins to deal with us about things. And this is good news. Some of you, you have lives that are a mess, and you're feeling very convicted about a lot of things, and it could be a very good thing because maybe the king is having his way, and he's busy rearranging all these things in your life. This is one of the reasons why we see such dramatic growth so often in the lives of new believers. There's some radical transformation that's taking place right out of the gate. And it's really, really obvious. But if you have a God who never challenges you, never convicts you, who doesn't have a hard edge to his will and lets you do whatever you want, Jesus is letting us know here that whoever that is is an imaginary God of your own making. How do you know Jesus is Lord in your life? He comes and he rearranges everything. He moves things around. He pushes you. He makes very clear to you the things that shouldn't be there. So you see, the Lord maintains the purity of his church corporately, and he does so individually. Corporately, through rightly ordered worship and church discipline, individually, through our sanctification. He rides into our lives, and as soon as he gets there, he begins arranging everything according to his liking. And the process does not end until we die. He's constantly working on us. He's growing us. He's shaping us. He's changing us. He's molding us. And he is maintaining the purity of his church. And that's why the only people who are supposed to be members of the church are those who are Christians. Something else we see here in this passage, another implication of the text, is that of the role of a faithful minister of God. God calls and gifts his people in the church in many ways, and he appoints us to various vocations for the purpose of fulfilling our calling in our lives to his glory. Within the church, God has called men who have been given the responsibility to shepherd the flock of God and to do so faithfully, to do so reverently. Remember, we said at the beginning that we saw last week Jesus as prophet and Jesus as king, and this week we see him as priest. Those called to a ministerial office within the church of God have the responsibility to see to it that the courts of the temple, if you will, must remain free from defilement. In other words, 
While the whole church is responsible for the purity of that local church, the chief responsibility lands on the shoulders of those who are called to carry that burden, namely those who are called to the office of pastor and elder. God calls and appoints his men to do hard things, ensuring that the purity of the bride is maintained, takes a certain amount of thick skin, and can sometimes be lonely and a distressing road. Faithful ministers carry a significant burden. The burden of the sins of God's people, the burden of maintaining the order and purity of the church, the burden of churches' associations and denominations, the burden of his own family and his own heart. And if a man is unwilling to do the things God has commanded, or if a man is too distracted by other aspects of his life to be able to focus on that task, or if a man is entangled in sin in his own life and his own house is out of order, he will not be able to do the hard things that Jesus shows us he must sometimes do. Look, many of you know from your own personal experience that it's one thing to talk about confronting others when they've sinned against you. It's something entirely different to actually go and do it. It's one thing to say, hey, we should probably clean up the temple a bit. It's a mess. It's something entirely different to actually make it happen. I want to share some statistics with you to sort of make this a more concrete reality. A few years ago, a massive study was done of pastors in conservative evangelical churches across America. These are churches that we would be very thankful for. We would commend their ministries as faithful, gospel-preaching churches. But here are some of the results of that survey. This is a lot of pastors that were surveyed. 90% of them said they were frequently fatigued and worn out on a weekly and even daily basis. 89% of them have considered leaving the ministry at one time. 57% of them said they would leave ministry today if they had a better place to go. 77% said they did not have a good marriage. 75% felt they were completely unqualified and poorly trained. 71% said they were completely burned out and regularly battled depression on a weekly and even daily basis. Only 23% of pastors who were surveyed said they felt happy and content on a regular basis with who they are in Christ, in their church, and in their home. On average, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. 50% of pastors' marriages will end in divorce. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates will enter the ministry and leave the ministry within the first five years. And of that remaining 20%, only 20% of them will make it to 10 years. Those are some sobering numbers. And I'm not sharing all of this as some subliminal lament or some self-serving way for you to pat the elders on the back. What I'm pointing out is that the kind of work that we see Jesus doing here The kind of work that he calls ministers to is not easy, it's not often desirable, and it leaves a lot of casualties. However, it is absolutely necessary. And if we are not collectively seeking to love God together as his church, 
to walk in holiness for his glory, if we're not working together for the unity of the church, if we're not working together for the purity of the bride of Christ and making an intentional effort to always be biblical, there will be serious negative consequences for all of us. More than anything, I'm pleading with all of us, myself included in this, to be all the more committed to the things that God calls us to be as a local church. Understanding the primacy of the church in our lives, loving the church, even with all of her warts, because she's lovely and she's beautiful and Christ died for her. Pray for the church. Serve the church. Ask God to continually raise up faithful men to serve the church as her ministers. And ask God to preserve his men who are serving in local churches. That they not fall into sin, that they not grow discouraged and disgruntled, or that we would lose sight of the end goal. Sometimes we have to do really hard things. But it's worth it in the end for the good of the bride of Christ. Last thing here. Jesus' focus is to point the people to the main priority of the temple. The main priority of God, which is worship. And what happens when he does that? The reality is that a faithful ministry is never without its detractors. A group of people is enraged at Jesus and they seek to find a way here to destroy him. It is true of any faithful ministry that it will have its detractors. We see here in the text, all of the people were hanging on Jesus' every word. And what happened? Instead of listening to what Jesus had to say, determining whether or not it was true, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men were seeking to find a way to take him down because of what he was doing and because of what he was saying. They were threatened. Their power, their authority, their influence over the people was being threatened. And this is a reminder to us that no faithful church of God will be without its naysayers. And no faithful church of God will be without attack. The evil one has aligned his forces against the church of God. But we have the sure promise of God's word that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Brothers and sisters, every move of faithfulness on our part, every opportunity we take take to maintain the purity of the bride, every time we walk together in obedience to the Lord, we are pushing back the gates of hell from our midst. And when we meet together and reconcile our differences with one another, instead of resorting to gossip and slander, we push back the gates of hell. When we confess our sins to one another, and we repent in our hearts and desire to be right with God, we push back the gates of hell. When we strive for unity and love among the brethren, when we stand firmly on the truth of God's word in the midst of cultural pressures, when we work hard to stay married and to be faithful parents, when our single people seek to live chaste and holy lives, when our young people are obedient, honoring their parents, when things get tough and our feelings get hurt, 
and our preferences aren't fulfilled, instead of leaving, we stay and we serve and we love anyway because of our covenant bond with one another. And it is more important than our personal felt needs. When we do these things together, we're pushing back on the gates of hell around us. And we prove time and time and time again that they will not prevail against the church of God. And brothers and sisters, sometimes Jesus as king is going to come into the church as the high priest, just like he has in our individual lives, and he's going to rearrange some of the furniture. And it's not always easy. And sometimes it's painful. But will we persevere? Will we receive that, knowing it is from a heart of love from the Savior who died for us. We need to pray two things. One is that if there's anything within this local church that needs to be rearranged, that we can more rightly honor and worship God together, may he make it known by whatever means necessary that we would be more faithful, more biblical as a church. And two if and when he does that kind of work in our midst, that God would be pleased to make us all the more unified, loving one another, serving one another, and not turning on each other. May it never be that this place, our local church, is a den of robbers. May it always be true that we are the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a house of prayer for all peoples. Let's pray for these things together this week. Let's pray for these things now. Father, we are so thankful. We're so thankful that you have not called us and set us together and left us to ourselves to sort it all out. Lord, very clearly, if we are identifying what's true about our own hearts, we recognize that we would very quickly abandon all that you've called us to for the purity of your bride and seek after our own wants and desires. So, Father, first and foremost, I'm thankful that you have told us in your word what you require and you've shown us how to fulfill it. And you've reminded us yet again this morning that the purity of your church is of utmost importance to you. And so, Father, help us to be a people collectively in a unified and loving manner who seek after and uphold the purity of your church, that you would be glorified. We pray, Father, that if there are things that exist in our midst, in the things that we do, in the relationships that we have, in the way that we interact with one another, if there are things that exist that dishonor you, that are not pure and undefiled in the way that you desire your church to be, make them known to us by whatever means necessary. And we pray, God, as you do that, that we would stand firm, 
that we would persevere and that you would give us hearts of faith and a longing for unity and love and joy and peace among the brethren. That we would be an active force against the gates of hell, pressing them back day by day to reveal to the world that Christ our King, our great prophet, the great high priest is triumphant in all the world. May you be glorified in your church throughout the world and in this local church right here among us. For your name's sake and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.